Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning and a bit unusual service. Uh, I think people found out I was preaching. That's why so many showed up. That's why Wade showed up this morning. But it's a joy to be able to open up God's word with you this morning. Did I cut out there, Abe? No? Am I just hearing things? But I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. And as you're turning there, I want to thank all of you for the cards, the texts, the notes, the emails, uh, wishing Tiffany and I a Merry Christmas and uh, praying for the safety of our travel from, to and from California. Um, it, was, it was a blessed time to be with family, but it's a joy to be back uh, with our family here. Uh, namely, you guys, Kenny, not so much. But I digress. So Psalm 8. I'll read it this morning. It's reading from the New American Standard. For the choir director on the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So reads the word of the living God. It's a special skill these days to be able to write a good resume. I used to work in in a management position in several different jobs 
where I was helping to hire individuals or a part of that committee. And so I was reading through resumes. I was conducting interviews. It was quite a fun job, to be honest. And the goal in a resume, in writing a good resume, is to make yourself look really, really good. You're putting your best foot forward. And in a resume, in order to do that, you use really impressive vocabulary. Example for you, if you wanted to write how to change a light bulb, or that you've changed a light bulb, excuse me, here's a good way to say it. You proactively implemented concrete and cost-effective solutions that brought both horizontal and vertical impact to the workplace by raising visibility for all colleagues illuminating the office, and fostering a more inclusive working environment. Here's another one. Let's see if you can guess what it is. I independently and efficiently uninstalled and reinstalled critical mobility unit for heavy machinery, thus allowing the operator to function more safely and effectively. Any guesses? You changed a tire. You're, you're putting your best foot forward on a resume. And as one who reads the resume and conducts the interviews, you kind of have to read through those lines a little bit. Because your goal is to make yourself look really, really, really good. I was a little amazed that MVBC hired me. My resume didn't look that good, but man, I know some big words. You're, you're trying to get others to think more highly of you is your goal in writing a good resume. And this is how our society operates. We think highly of ourselves, don't we? If you want a prime example of that, by show of hands, did anyone get coal yesterday for Christmas? Well, you're missing out if you did. Coal prices are through the roof. But of course you didn't. Because you and your children were good this year. Yeah, we had a few mess-ups here and there, but we're good people. When you look at yourself, I, I see myself in a better light. I look good. I made a few mistakes, but I'm okay. Our society tells us that we're good people. In fact, there's an entire movement devoted to self-love and self-worth. You can see these quotes all over Facebook. I love them. We hear these expressions all the time. Treat yourself. Pamper yourself. You've earned it. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to sometimes. And the church has always pushed back against this. We understand the concept of total depravity, don't we? Even our adventure kids, our adventure club kids, excuse me, they recently memorized the verse that says, there is none righteous, not even one. There was a preacher who once was going through that passage, and Paul kind of included a little caveat at the end there because Paul may have said, there is none righteous, and someone in the crowd stood up and said, what about me? And Paul says, no, not even you. In Romans 3.23, we know the truth. 
for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's one of the first verses you memorize as a Christian. When you're evangelizing, it's one of the first verses you're going to use. You think you're good? No, you're a wretched sinner. So as Christians, when we hear the concept of self-love or, or self, um, self-care and all these concepts, we kind of cringe, don't we? We don't really like to hear those phrases. We retreat to the words of Job. Job 25, verse 6. He says, how much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. Our character and our understanding of total depravity is nothing new to us. Now this morning, I I want us to take a closer look at Psalm chapter 8. It's it's a psalm of, of biblical anthropology, if you will. It shows us a fuller view of who we are as mankind because as we will see, there is actually more to us than our total depravity. As Christians, yes, we see total depravity. Amen and amen. I stand on that truth. That is in Scripture. I wholeheartedly agree with that. But by only looking at ourselves as totally depraved, we're missing half of the equation. There's, there's more to us than total depravity. And don't misunderstand me, we are depraved. Absolutely. But there's a balance to be found, isn't there? In understanding who we are. And as this psalm will point out to us, we are a glorious creation. There's an old friend of mine, when I used to spend summers in Nebraska working at a children's Christian camp, he and I would go back and forth every single week on the concept of who we are. And he would tell me, his name was Dennis, he would say, Nate, I am a wretched sinner deserving of hell. And I would say, yes, Dennis, that is correct, but you are also a redeemed saint bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, as we're looking at this as a pendulum, I, I want to swing the pendulum just a little back, little bit back toward the middle. We are totally depraved, but we're also a glorious creation. And before you start accusing me of being an inspirational speaker and throwing your Bibles at me, let's hear what the psalmist has to say. This is a psalm that I call a personal and reflective commentary on Genesis 1 and 2. That's why I had Casey read for us the account of creation earlier. Because the psalmist, in this case David, he is reflecting on creation. It may be that he's reading his Bible, reading through the account of Genesis 1 and 2, and he's reflecting on it through this psalm. And in understanding how God has orchestrated all things through creation and how he has created us, we can rightly understand who we are in relationship to God. You see that I've titled this, A Glorious Perspective. Because as we'll see, man, although he is wormy, to use the words of Job, he's also a glorious creation 
of the wonderful creator, which is all done to the glory of God. You can see that in verse 1 and verse 9. So let's take a look here at Psalm 8. Looking at the superscription here, it says, For the choir director on the Gittith, a psalm of David. Now, we don't really get much out of this. Uh, we know it's, it's on a gittith, which is an instrument, and one individual said it sounds kind of like a guitar, so this may be a guitar solo. We don't really know what a gittith is. You can do hours and hours of study on it, and we don't really know. We also don't know when David wrote this. He could have written this while he was a shepherd, or he could have written this as a king in his palace or in his older years. We're not really sure. What we can suppose is that he may have written this at night. When you take a look at verse 3, he references the moon and the stars. So he may have been laying back, looking up, as he considered creation and as he penned this psalm. He may have been in a shepherd's field doing this. He may have been in his palace at night doing this. We don't know. But what we do see here in this psalm is that David is not looking at man's perspective of God. That's not David's concern. David's concern is what is God's perspective of man. Because in order for us to understand who we are, we have to understand who God is. So my outline, which you don't have in front of you, but I can give you, is it's pretty simple. There's three points, and two of them actually repeat. In verses 1 and 2, we have the glory of God's personality. The glory of God's personality. And then in verses 3 through 8, we have the glory of man's position. And then we have the glory of God's personality in verse 9. The point 1 and point 3 are the same because verse 1 and verse 9 are identical. So David starts by looking at the glory of God's personality. The glory of God's personality. And he starts off there in verse 1 by saying, O Lord, our Lord. This sounds kind of like a, the start of a pledge almost. O Lord, our Lord. But as we know, we are studied and learned and educated Christians here. We know that that first term for Lord in all capitals there is not just Lord, but it's referencing the personal name of God. I started doing my study for this out of the Legacy Standard Bible, which is what I had with me in California when Bear sent me the text. And so it's a little, little hard for me working out of the NAS this morning, but really the verse starts off by saying, Oh, Yahweh, our Lord. And the first Lord that we see there, capital L-O-R-D, in reference to the name of God, it's, it's an identifier of who he is. Kind of like how your name identifies you 
we all carry a driver's license unless you're below a specific age. I think it's 14 here in Idaho. But your name identifies you. And in the same way, God's personal name identifies who he is. This name first appeared in Exodus chapter 3. And I'll just read these verses too. I don't have them on the screen, but follow along and listen as I read from Exodus 3. Moses is speaking to God here. He says, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Then God said to Moses, I am who I am. And God said, Thus thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Furthermore, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. (coughs) It's interesting to note, (coughs) the name I am, That's where it derives from, I am, Yahweh. When you read it in the Hebrew text, it is, I am. It demonstrates that God does not change. He's not saying, I was or I will be. He says, I am. His name, who he is, what identifies him as God, always remains constant. He has always been, he will always be, who he was when he declared his faithfulness to Abraham, when he led Israel out of Egypt, when he showed himself faithful to Joshua, this is who he is, and it never changes. But David continues. He says, O Yahweh, our Lord. You see, the first one there is a name, Yahweh. The second is a title. The first identifies who he is. The second identifies what he is. It expresses his relationship to us. He is Lord. He is King. He is over all things. And it's interesting, David notes here, God isn't just standing aloof. He didn't just create and then walk away. He is our Lord. In fact, this is the first time that David uses the plural in reference to God. He is our Lord. It's kind of like when you were a kid and you would see your mom or your dad from a distance and you'd be with your friends and you saw your dad coming and you'd say, that's my dad. That's my dad, and I am his child, and I know him, but more importantly, he knows me. It's a personal relationship. Oh, Yahweh, our Lord. David goes on in verse 1. He says, How majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above 
the heavens. Now these two lines that we have here, how majestic is your name in all the earth, and then who have displayed your splendor above the heavens, they're, they're kind of a parallel of each other. The first one, referencing how majestic is your name in all the earth, that shows us that all creation proclaims God's glory from one end of the earth to the other. There is nowhere that God's glory is not proclaimed. This morning, the first song that we sung, all creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. All creation gives praise to God. From the desert to the ocean. Every aspect of creation is declaring God's glory fully. We see that in Psalm chapter 19. But then David takes it a step further. He says, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. And it's not just that God's glory and his splendor goes to the heavens, but it's above the heavens. It goes beyond this planet. It goes beyond the stars. It cannot be contained. God's glory cannot be bottled. It is beyond the heavens. It is beyond all things. It is greater, higher, more majestic than anything. David wrote of this in his narrative in 1 Kings he says in 1 Kings chapter 8, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Nehemiah says a similar thing. He says, you alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly host bows down before you. God's glory cannot be contained. And so we see the personal name of God who identifies who he is in that he is the great God. He is the same from beginning to end. He always has, he always will be. He is our Lord. In fact, that we have a personal relationship with him and his glory is everywhere. It cannot be contained. And David moves on. In verse 2, God shows how his glory is displayed in verse 2. And it's interesting to see here the contrast that David creates. He says, from the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have established strength because of your adversaries, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. The contrast David has here, you have babies and you have bad guys. You have babies and you have bad guys. And we, we see the power of God, the great splendor and majesty of God in verse 1, and God further demonstrates his splendor and his glory by using the weakest to shame the strongest. Notice how that it is from these children that the wicked are silenced. Have you ever considered that Satan 
in all of his power, in all of his might, as the prince of the power of the air, as one like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, he cannot stand against the simple truth that comes from the lips of children when they sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And they're singing that on the way home from church, in the car seat, in the van. You see, God demonstrates his greatness through the weakest vessels. That's how God works. You you flip through your Bible, you'll see it. You see it in Sarah, who is old and barren, but yet God told her, you will bear a son to continue the line of the seed. We saw it in Moses, who declared to God, I am a stutterer, I can't do this, but yet God used him as a great mouthpiece for the nation of Israel in declaring the law of God to Israel. We saw it in little David, as the youngest of Jesse's sons. They had to go out into the field to find him, and yet he became a man after God's own heart. You see it in Mary, who was just a youth when she bore Jesus Christ, who was king of the Jews, and yet Herod was shocked of this and couldn't stand it. And you see this ultimately in the shame, in the sorrow, in the pain that is the cross, that is one of the most embarrassing ways to die, yet God demonstrated his power through that weak point to save humanity. God demonstrates his greatness through the weakest vessel. God shows himself to be strong and glorious through the weakest of individuals. It's interesting, Jesus actually quotes this psalm in Matthew 21. Jesus is healing blind and lame individuals. And the scribes and the chief priests, I'll read it for you here from Matthew 21. It says, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, They, that is the chief priests and scribes, became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself? You see, these religious leaders... They scoffed and mocked the average man. They puffed themselves up for all the great knowledge that they have about the law and about religious matters and the Torah. Yet the children had more true and right praise to God than they did, and it infuriated them. God uses the weakest to shame the strongest. You have babies up against the bad guys. And it's interesting, Paul understood this concept. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Again, in his next letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, 
But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. This is redemption at work. And this is the glory of God's personality. He is great. He is mighty. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is our Lord. And he works by using the weakest individuals in order to show himself to be even stronger so that those who may consider themselves strong cannot even stand against them. The power of God, the glory of God's personality on full display. But then David switches to look at the glory of man's position. The glory of man's position. And this really starts in verse 3 and 4. You have to put the two verses together to really get a full thought. But he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man? that you take thought of him, and the Son of Man, that you care for him. David starts by looking up. He turns to look at creation itself, and he's blown away by it. All the starry hosts in the sky, just done by the fingertips of God. It's interesting to note here, the phrase moon and stars actually comes from Genesis chapter 1. And in God's creation account, God calls the light day and the darkness night. He gives names to things to show their prominence. But God doesn't even name the stars, the moon and the stars. And in the ancient Near Eastern culture, they would worship the moon and the stars. Yet God is saying in his creation account, these are but an afterthought compared to me. And David's just sitting there looking up at these stars. When Tiffany and I were living in Los Angeles, we could go out our front door, look up, and typically see about three stars. And miraculously, all three stars were headed for Los Angeles International Airport. And we would take dates, actually, to get up and away from the city. There was a mountain range next to the city, and we would go up and away, and there was an overlook that we would, you could look over the entire city, but you could also see the stars out there, get away from the city lights, and you could see hundreds in the sky. When we moved here to Idaho, Little Twin Falls doesn't exactly produce as much light as Los Angeles, and so you can go out your porch and look up, and there are thousands of stars. And often, our reaction is much like David's in verse 4, that of humility and meekness. Because we recognize that God created this as almost an afterthought. These stars, the moon, they are nothing in comparison to him. The wonder and the awe of the stars in heaven are of no comparison to the insurmountable greatness, glory, and grandeur of God. Yet here we are, far below, tiny little humans. Billions and billions of stars in the galaxy 
and hundreds of other galaxies out there, and we're here on planet Earth just looking up in amazement at what God has created with his fingertips as just an afterthought. So when you look at David's question in verse 4, it's a legitimate question. It's, it's a question of man's position. We're, we're currently working through the point the, of man's glory in his position. And David's asking the question, why should God care about me? I look up and see the stars, yet here I am, just little puny, wormy me. Why should God care about me? How does that make you feel? Do you feel humbled at how small you are? Do you puff yourself up as a great creation? The psalmist in Psalm 144 says similarly, O Lord, what is man that you take knowledge of him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. In Job, Job's Similarly, in chapter 7 of Job, he says, What is man that you magnify him and that you are concerned about him? These verses show us just how puny and worm-like man is in comparison to God. And we understand that. But David takes a slightly different approach to this. David, in verses 5 through 8, he not only focuses on his puniness, but also his gloriousness as a creation of God, made by God and for God. He says, yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Looking at the gloriousness of man as created by God and for God. You see, he goes back once again to the Genesis account of creation, which is not only focused on God's glory in creation, but also the fact that God made man. Just to give you a brief theology of creation, and a little plug for our Thursday night Bible study, we've been going through this. But in Genesis 1, you kind of have a snapshot overview of all of creation. It starts off, God made this, and then he made this, and then he made this. It's kind of an overview of all of creation. But then you get into chapter 2. And God actually uses his personal name for the first time in chapter 2, declaring himself to be Yahweh, an intimate creator. Not just a creator who created all this in Genesis 1, but an intimate creator as part of the lives of his creation. Genesis 2 provides us an intimate look at God creating man. And God creates man in his image. And man being made in the image of God, 
is not just a representation of God, one who is made in the image of God, kind of like how you are the spitting image of your father or you are the spitting image of your mother. You're made in the image of your parents. You are made in the image of God, showing man to be a representation of God. But not only that, man is a representative of God in how he acts upon the earth. God commands man to have dominion over the earth. Another word for that is what we call sovereignty. And so God, having sovereignty over all of creation, he tells man, now you have sovereignty over creation as well, acting as a representative of God on earth. He's to have dominion. It's interesting, in Genesis 1, you have God, he called the night day, and the, or the light day and the darkness night. But then in Genesis 2, God brings the animals to Adam to see what he would call them. Showing that God's sovereignty, man shares in that, in his little abode on earth, as a representative of God on earth. And all of it, all of creation, we understand in the creation account, God named it, he declared what it is, and it came to be. It was all under the power of God, and God made man in his image, all of it to display the glory of God. To use kind of a poor illustration, when you think of an image, another word for image in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, is an idol. And an idol is meant You're meant to look at the idol, and it's a representative of a greater deity. But when you look at the image of God in man, it's to point you back to the glory and greatness of God himself. So all of creation, God making plants and animals and dividing the waters from the land, all of it pointing to God's gloriousness, and then God makes man, and everything that sees man points back to the glory of God. Understanding. That all of creation is focused on the glory of God. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. A creation that constantly points to God and concludes with God creating man in order to bring God glory. You think you're insignificant and small? Consider that the God who made the universe, who has always been and always will be, who rules over all things, cares for you as one who is made in the image of God. You see, in order to have a right biblical anthropology, in order to rightly understand who you are as man, you have to have a right biblical theology. You have to understand who God is. But there's a problem. You see, we look at verses 5 through 8, and creation doesn't really function that way anymore. We no longer rightly have dominion and sovereignty over the earth. You think I'm wrong? I dare you to go to the safari, walk up to a lion, and declare that you have dominion over it. Because that lion is going to declare that you are lunch. Man no longer has the authority as the image of God that God intended him to have. And we know that that's a result of man's sin. Man failed to be obedient to the mandate God had given him. 
And when man sinned, man declared himself to be autonomous from God, deciding, I don't want to be under God's sovereignty. I want to be my own person. And so as a result, man is no longer getting his worth from God. Rather, man is acting kind of like Nebuchadnezzar. You remember that story in Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar was reflecting on his kingdom, and he says this, it's really interesting, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And the very next verse says this, While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar saw himself autonomous from God, declaring glory unto himself. He only glorified himself for all that had, all that had happened, all that had been created. And God's saying, if you're not going to glorify God as you should, as you were intended to as the image of God, then your self-worth is going to be that of an animal. And he was driven out like a beast into the wilderness. The very thing that man was to have sovereignty over, King Nebuchadnezzar became like that because he wanted his own glory. Sin runs rampant through selfishness. It denies God the glory that he deserves, doesn't it? You see, your worth in who you are as a a created being by God is found by looking to your creator. And by looking to your creator and understanding, God, you have made me. You alone are sovereign over all things. You then bring God glory as a result. Because what's happening is that you're understanding who God is, and as a result of that, you understand who you are. This is the glorious perspective of this psalm. It does not come from ourselves, but from God. And God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the perfect man. You know, it's interesting, as you consider your worth, as a Christian even, your value, and hear me out now, your value is not in the fact that Jesus died for you. Your value is not in the fact that Jesus died for you. Rather, it's in the fact of who Jesus is. Because anyone could get on a cross and die for their friends. It's painful, sure, and you could do it. In fact, there are still some religions that practice that today. Around Easter, they have an individual, a pious individual, get up and die on a cross. Anyone can do that. But only the Son of God, only the perfect man, only the sinless Christ could give you value to be called children of God. 
It doesn't come from Moses. It doesn't come from Abraham. And that is exactly what the writer of Hebrews chapter 2 is telling us, because Hebrews chapter 2 quotes this psalm. In fact, turn there with me. Let's go over there. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, starting at verse 5. It says this, For he did not subject to, to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection excuse me, under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, that is man, he, God, left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but keep reading. But we do see him, that is Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. You see, our glorious perspective on who we are is found in Christ, who was the perfect man. Your worth is not found in anything or anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He died in order to glorify the Father so that we too might bring Him glory as He alone deserves. The Westminster Catechism, the very first question in it, which if you're looking for a great way to teach your kids the Bible, catechisms are a great way to do it. The first question of the Westminster Catechism says this, what is the chief end of man? And the response is, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You see, the biggest problem we have in the world today is not hunger or fighting or wars. It's the fact that God currently does not receive all the glory that He is due. So that is our goal. That is our worth. That is the glorious perspective in understanding that we were made by God and for God to bring Him glory as His glorious creation. You are a sinner. But you are saved by grace through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a glorious perspective. And I conclude with the words of Paul in Romans, his doxology at the end of chapter 11, where he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him alone 
be the glory forever. And the church said, let's stand and we'll close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your sovereignty and in your greatness, knowing that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by you to bring you glory. May that be our desire in life and in all things to bring you glory that you alone deserve. Lord, we pray that you would guide us going into the new year, that we would be resolved to worship you and you alone. We thank you for our time in the word this morning. May it be edifying and encouraging to our hearts as we seek to live out your word each and every day in our lives. We love you, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.